0: This morning, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, as we're walking our way through this great letter that John wrote. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of chapter 3 this morning, and uh, Tyler's going to lead us in the last part of the chapter next week. But John writes in 1 John 3, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. And the reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sin. For in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And so no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. And this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother or sister. Father God, this morning as we Open your word. We pray that you would speak to us afresh. We pray, God, that we would understand a little bit about what it means to be a child of yours, what it means that we should not sin, what it means that we should love our brother and sister. And so, Father God, we pray. Speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the benefits of being part of a smaller denomination such as we are is that for most of my life, I've been part of this, and so I know a fair number of people within our denomination. Our daughters used to work at our denominational camp at Keats in Vancouver, and they would come and tell us about friends they had made at camp, and we'd say, oh yeah, what's their last name? And they'd tell us, we'd say, oh yeah, yeah, we know their parents, we know their folks. I don't really know what that meant, you know, the fact that I knew their folks. We knew something about how they were raised, but but there's something about knowing how the family works that, means something. At least it did for John. That's, he's talking this morning about what it means to be a child of God, and we've been singing about that. And now we're going to try and unpack what John's saying, because John isn't always the easiest guy to understand either. So what is it that being a child of God means? And so let's start with that point. What does it mean to be a child of God? He says in verse one, see what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And I think what John is trying to say is we should understand our primary identity as being children of God. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I thought everybody was a child of God. I thought God was the father of all the world. Doesn't tell us very much when you say we're a child of God. But. John goes on at the end of that passage we read to kind of nuance the fact that, well, not everybody is a child of God in the full sense of the word. In fact, he ends by saying this, this is how you know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. In other words, there's two different camps. Anyone who doesn't do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who doesn't love their brother and their sister. I get a little troubled, maybe you do too, with this children of the devil, children of God. It seems pretty black and white, seems pretty this or that. And John does tend to see that way. He talks about life and death. He talks about light and dark. He talks about children of God, children of the devil. And he tells us that when it comes to our paternity, we are all children of God. That God is the father of everybody in the world. If we're talking about paternity. But you remember that story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son ran away from his father. He ran away from home. He lived in the far country. He lived his own life. He lived far outside of any relationship with his father. And what John is saying is that's really our story. That through sin we have given up the relationship that we had with our father. He's still paternally Our parent but we're not experiencing his fatherhood and then he says uh, you can tell the difference between those who do and those who don't and this morning we just want to take a look at that question how do you know whether you're a child of God or not and John answers the question you know by looking at people's actions and he says in that last verse in verse 10 Anyone who doesn't do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who doesn't love their brother and sister. And if you've been raised in the church, if you have an understanding about the fact that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins, that we're saved by grace, this idea that our actions are what define us makes us a little leery to walk down this road any too far. What is it that Paul is saying, or John is saying, when he says, Anyone who doesn't do what is right is not God's child. In fact, John's whole thing about sin is is a little bit confusing because sometimes he seems to say we shouldn't sin at all and that if we sin, we're not really following God. And we need to read a little carefully in this letter to figure out what he's trying to say or not. So let's just read a little further and let's see how... John nuances this. So we're thinking about sin. And he goes back to this comment in verse 3 that we are children of God. And then he says, all of us who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. For everyone who breaks the law in sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And he works sin into this discussion one more time. So it probably wouldn't hurt just to figure out what sin is. Just make sure we're all on the same page as John when it comes to sin. And so he says, well, from God's side, sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion. It's doing our own thing. It's either denying what is true or denying what is best, or sometimes both. If you remember that story of Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, the, sat- the serpent comes to them, Satan in disguise, if you want, comes to them and said, did God really say so it's a question of what is truth. And, well, God didn't really mean that this would damage you if you did it. God doesn't know what's best. Satan says to them, no, in fact, your eyes will be open. Things will be better if you sin. And, and sometimes I think sin is this idea that, well, maybe that isn't true. Or maybe if it is true, uh it's not gonna damage us, it's not gonna hurt us. This is a sin that has no, uh, no implications, if you want. And so from, from God's side, it's this lawlessness, it's this rebellion, it's this not believing what is true and what is best. But from our side, probably it's three different things. It's our acts, it's our attitudes, and it's our nature. So the first one, our acts, that's what we mostly think about when we think about sin. If you come and confess your sin, uh, we're going to do communion in a few minutes and uh, we're going to have a brief time of confession. And when we confess, what we generally confess is these are the things that we did that were wrong. If we're, uh, you know, a little bit more spiritual, perhaps, these are the things we didn't do that we should have done. But sin is about our acts, the wrong that we do or the good we don't do. And that's true. But there's a deeper level behind that because our acts often come out of our attitudes. And our attitudes are deeper than our actions. They're kind of what goes behind. So say we're talking in Calgary about what's the weather like? Well, the weather is what's happening outside. So it's sunny, it's rainy, it's snowing, you know, all at the same time and all in July. Um, But when we talk about the climate, the climate is what is the weather like over time? Uh, the climate is uh, we're a prairie city that's got a high altitude, so we get uh, not a lot of precipitation, but we get a lot of wind, and it gets cold, and we get Chinooks. So that's climate kind of stuff. And it's sort of the same thing with attitudes are like the weather, or actions are like the weather, but attitudes are like the climate. It's the bigger picture. And, and some of these attitudes... God defines the Ten Commandments, some of them he defines in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall not covet, you shall not uh, lust after uh, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, uh, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Or he says, uh, Jesus says in Matthew, I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Not that you do anything with it, just the attitude of anger is enough to be sin." And then as if that's not enough, there's this third layer that's deeper yet. And that is that all our acts and our attitudes come out of our nature. They come out of who we are. Sin is more than simply acts and attitudes. It's just who we are. Our fundamental nature, because of sin, our fundamental nature has changed. Where God made everything good and made us to have this relationship with him, sin has affected that. And it's as though we've caught this fatal disease, if you want. And our actions and our attitude are symptoms that there's a deeper disease. And if you want to treat the disease, you've got to treat not just the symptoms, but the underlying cause. And the problem that uh, John would say is that we've become infected by sin and it's affected our nature. In fact, it has virtually killed our spiritual nature, our spiritual center, that part of us that connects with God. And John will often talk about being dead in our sins. Paul will as well. And it's that our, our nature has been affected by sin. And the solution, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 in his gospel, is that we need to be made alive again spiritually. We need to be born again. And in doing that, the underlying disease is cured, and then we can start working on those symptoms of our attitudes and our actions. And so Paul, John is trying to explain to us that children of God has something to do with this sin. He hasn't yet established what it is, but, it, but it's related to that. And he's saying that what everybody was made to be a child of God, to have a relationship with him, to have God's immediate presence with them. He was to be their father, to be the one who walked and talked with them, but sin has come in and disrupted that. It's disrupted the relationship. It's seriously affected our spiritual capacity to have that kind of deep relationship with him. It's affected who we are. It's affected the very nature of who we are. And the visible symptoms of that are the acts and the attitudes that we call sin. And God dealt with this through Jesus Christ. If we read on in in this letter that John wrote, he says, you know that Jesus appeared that he might take away our sins. And then a little bit later, he says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And so John reminds us that Jesus came to deal with sin, that God the son came to earth to live as this God, man, Jesus, To be born, to live, to die, to rise again. And in doing this, he did at least a couple of things. The first thing was, our sin had come with a penalty. As Paul put it in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And Jesus, as our sacrifice, paid that penalty for our sins. As John says, We know that he appeared, that he might take away our sin. But more than just taking away our sin, he also defeated Satan. He overcame death and sin. And he came not just to save us, but to defeat Satan. He came to deal with the problem, not just the symptom. As John says in verse 8, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And then John draws the conclusion, and this is where the challenging part of the letter comes, because the conclusion he draws is not the conclusion we would draw. In his section on sin and the Christian, he says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or knows him. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. And when we get to John's conclusion, I don't know if that bothers you or not, but looking back on my week and my life, I would have to say if the fact that I, my relationship with God and the fact that I'm a child of God is dependent on the fact that I don't sin, then I've got a big problem. And I imagine you do too. And it appears that John's conclusion is just really simply that. We shouldn't sin because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and he defeated Satan and we're living in that reality. And John in his black and white way of seeing everything just puts it out there. And that's why sometimes you have to put various passages in the same book together to see what the author is actually saying. Because sometimes they just lay it out there as if this is the whole truth. But the reality is this is a part of the truth, and other parts of it factor in. And as we nuance those together, we begin to see what truth really is. So we go back in John's gospel to the, or John's letter to the first chapter that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And he says this, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. Then he says this If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sin, and will purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and the word is not in us. And so John there is pretty clear that that sin is part of our reality. And I think what John is trying to do in these passages is the same thing that a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about in his book called Cheap Grace. And and John is really clear that, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his death, through the sacrifice that he made for us, our sins are forgiven and that we never need to fear coming to God and asking for forgiveness. But what John is concerned about is that that could be a get-out-of-jail-free card that we can continuously play with God. It could just be a credit card that allows us to rack up this debt of sin, if you want. And what John is concerned about is that we lose the seriousness of sin. He's concerned that what happens is, Well, sin doesn't matter. Jesus died and paid the price for it. It's all forgiven. I can live any way I like. There may be right or wrong. There may not be right or wrong. It really doesn't matter. I could do right. I could do wrong. It really doesn't matter. God loves me. God forgives me in Jesus Christ. And I've got this get out of jail free card. So what John is saying and the Bible says is that we live in an age in which though Jesus defeated Satan on the cross, Satan is still at work in this world. And so we keep on sinning. Our actions and our attitudes are not what they should be. And he's simply saying we need to be at work in them. He uses this progressive tense, if you want. He uses this anyone who keeps on sinning as if it doesn't matter. Kind of my paraphrase on the end of that, but anyone who keeps on sinning. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We need to confess that. That's where he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And if we continually live in sin without any progress, the reality of our relationship with God is in question. And this is where he says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And I come back to it all the time, but it's the best way I understand it is this idea of waves on the beach and the tide. And our sins are like the waves on the beach. You know, some weeks we are better than other weeks. Some weeks, you know, just somehow the Spirit of God is with us, or maybe we're not tempted as much, or maybe we're not challenged as much. But, but we have good weeks when it comes to kind of obeying God. There's other weeks where we're just challenged. You know, maybe we don't get enough sleep. Maybe the devil is specially at work in our lives. Maybe it's a more challenging week. But you know you have weeks where, man, you know, you just don't... You know that you haven't lived up to what you hoped. The question is not, are there waves that are higher and lower? The question is, is there a tide that is coming in? So it's sort of like that weather-climate thing. It's not on a short term, am I seeing consistent whatever... Uh, No, there's going to be ups and downs because we're human beings. But over time, are we seeing progress in our lives? Are we maturing in our faith? And are we dealing with the sins in our lives? And that's, I think, what John is saying. If we keep on sinning as if it doesn't matter. If we keep on sinning and never make any progress. Will we keep on sinning? Yeah, we will. But if the tide of holiness is coming in, that's what John is pointing to. And he closes off this section by simply saying, anyone who doesn't do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who doesn't love their brother and sister. And so I think there, he kind of puts it in a black-white, positive-negative He's saying negatively don't do what is not right double negative do what is right don't sin but positively he says we need to love our brother and our sister and you know for Paul, for John that this word love is just so important in this concept of love and the question comes how do we love our brother and sister And I think the challenge of loving someone is loving someone who's different than us. There are people who are lovable. They are easy to love. But there are people who are unlovable. They're unlovable because they're different from us. They're unlovable because of other things. But the question comes, how do we love our brother and sister who are different than us? And That's what these marches of this past couple of weeks have been all about. It's this hot topic today. How do we love someone who is different than us? And racism has come into the conversation in a fresh way. And I just want to close with sort of my limited understanding of this. Because I think we struggle in this area a little bit. And I think we struggle for a simple reason. Is that the, the concept of racism has changed over the last number of years. A number of years ago, I think the fairly common way of looking at racism was this idea of a melting pot. If there was an image that that kind of pictured that, it's this idea of a melting pot where you take a lot of different things, say they're metal, and you take all these different kinds of metal. You take aluminum, you take iron, you take steel, you take tin, you take copper, you take bronze, you take all these things, you put them in the same pot, you melt it up under immense heat, and they all flow together to become a new metal, meditium. And it's... Got the characteristics of all those things put together. And and to be against racism under that image is that you cannot see a difference between people. Everybody has to look the same. And everybody has to be treated the same. And that seems to make a lot of sense. But the way we see racism today is nuanced from that. And I want to suggest to you that if if that is the melting pot model, the the image that we have today is a stew pot model. It's a pot of stew, and stew is one dish made up of many ingredients that you can still identify as you're eating them. You can flate, you can taste the difference between uh, the meat and the onion and the potato and the vegetable. It's many ingredients that keep their identity but flavor the whole. And I think this idea of the stew pot is to say that we, when we see people, it's acknowledging that there are differences between us. There are differences in our stories. There's differences in our history. There's differences in our appearance. There's differences in our experience. And it is treating people accordingly. Lyle Schaller, who is a guy I enjoy reading, said one time, there is nothing so unequal as the equal treatment of unequals. Try that one again. There is nothing so unequal as the equal treatment of unequals. In other words, treating everyone the same is not always the most just way to act. Look at society. We do this all the time. If you are under 18 in Alberta, you cannot go to the bar legally. But if you're over 18, you can. We discriminate on age. If you make over $100,000, you pay at a different rate on your income tax than if you make $15,000. We discriminate on income. Some people get social assistance, some people get pensions, and some people work for a company or are self-employed, and we discriminate unemployment. I mean, go back to the stew pot. When you're making stew, you treat every ingredient differently. So you're making a meat stew. Well, probably you start with the meat, and maybe you flour it, maybe you brown it, and you put it in first. And then maybe you throw in the potato, and then maybe you throw in the onion, and maybe you throw in the vegetable, and then maybe you throw in last, you know, perhaps the mushrooms or something like that. What you're trying to do is to bring out the best of each of those in this dish, and you treat them differently. And I think that's the the difference that we have got to with this idea of what racism means. That because we have different stories and different appearances and different experiences and different histories, we have to treat people differently. We have to treat people uniquely. And it's not racist to treat different people differently if that leads to justice. In fact, sometimes the most racist thing you can do is treat everybody the same as if they were all equal when they're not. And the point is not that we're all equal at the starting line, but that in some ways we're all equal at the finish line. It's not that we treat everything in the stew the same at the beginning, but we treat everything so that at the end, everything is the way it should be. And I think that's the struggle that we're trying to understand in our society today. And that's the best way I know how to understand the discussion. If it's helpful, I hope it is. If it's not, we'll take it off the web. But, um, but the question is, how do we live out love? And we live out love uniquely. We love our brother and our sister not as people, but we love them as individuals. And it makes a difference how we treat them. And we're not afraid to treat them differently if it is for a just reason and for a just end. I wrote a piece for the Wednesday newsletter, and I just finished with some of the thoughts that I put in there because I just think if we're going to love people and we're going to get through this this racial divide that is part of Canada and is part of the U.S., it's more subtle in Canada. There is no doubt about that. But I think there's three things, as I said in that piece, that we need to do. The first one is we need to pray. We need to ask God to make us aware of our biases. Uh, One of the challenges of this is we don't see our own attitudes. We need to confess for our country. You know, throughout the Bible, uh, Nehemiah, others would confess for their country the attitudes that have been there in the past. Confess the way we've treated people, especially indigenous people in Canada but also new immigrants and anyone who's different than us in a way. Pray God to release his spirit of justice afresh. I think we need to be praying for our police officers. They have an incredibly challenging job in this time. As many of them get blamed for the actions of a few, and especially for the police in our church. You know, I've been praying for them this week, that God would know we appreciate them and that they are called to their ministry. And we need to be in prayer. And we need to remember that our struggle, as Paul said, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces. And that's what we're in a battle with, not with people. Second thing, after we pray, we need to speak. I'd used a quote from one of our board members, which I just found very powerful. He just wrote this. He said, last night I was rocking my daughter to sleep and using my cell phone as white noise. And once she fell asleep, I turned the noise off. And in that moment, it struck me how jarring silence could be. And I said to my wife, wow, silence really is deafening. And sometimes what we don't say says more than what we do. And Isaiah said, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. And then the third thing I think we need to do is we need to act. If we pray and speak, we've also got to live that out. We've got to walk the talk. And many of us have been reflecting on our own situations. and well, what do we do? And I, I think it has to be on an individual level. What am I going to do to show I love the brothers and sisters around me? I can march and I can post and I can do all kinds of things. But if I'm not loving the people that God has put in my world, if I'm not loving my neighbor if I'm not loving my workmate, if I'm not loving that person in the church, we need to listen for God's spirit to tell us how to be his hands and feet. But it's going to be very local and it's going to be very close. But as Micah says, God is calling us to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. John summarizes everything we've been saying this morning in those last two verses of verses 9 and 10 of the section that we looked at. This is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. He's not saying that that's the only thing, but he's saying if you understand that you are made to have a relationship with God, if you understand that you've walked away from that relationship through sin, if you understand that Jesus has come to draw you back, to pay the penalties, to defeat the powers of sin, if you know that God wants to be your father and to have a deep relationship with you, if you know all that, if you are not seeing outward signs of that, then maybe there's a question. So it's not simply am I doing good? It's, am I doing good because of all of this that has happened? And this morning we're going to come and we're going to take communion. And I invite you just to pause for a moment and to just confess to God where you're at. Confess your struggles with sin. Confess your struggles with your attitudes. Confess the fact that You know, we get to be judgmental about people sometimes. Confess the fact that we want God to be our father, to to live in that intimate relationship with him where we have this sense that that God is our father, that that nothing we can say to him can shock him, nothing we say to him can drive him away. Everything we do, we do in his presence with his power, experiencing his peace. And this morning, I invite you into a deeper relationship of what it means to be a child of God. About how deep the Father's love for us truly is. That he would send Jesus Christ in this image of communion, this bread and this cup, that he would send Jesus Christ to die for us. That we can have this father-child relationship with him. That he can be at work in our lives, helping us overcome our acts and our attitudes because he has transformed our nature back to one who is in relationship with him. And so let's bow in prayer and maybe stop the service for a moment or two just to pray as we prepare for communion. And then let's come and take these elements together and eat and drink in remembrance of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So, Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for John's letter that speaks so loud in our situation today. Father, we thank you for your love for us, that you love us with a father's love. And Father God, as we come and we take these elements, we confess we're unworthy of your love. But we thank you for Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself for us. We thank you for the gift of your spirit who comes and indwells us with your presence. And we thank you for your love as a father who watches over us, who walks with us, and who has this deep relationship with us. And we thank you for all that because of Jesus Christ. Amen.